Restore it. Restore the worship. Restore the rightful heir to the throne. But notice, even though Jehoash started well, notice verse 3, but the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. Now, even though they may have been worshiping Jehovah, perhaps many of them, maybe not all of them, but they were to do it in the right place. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with senior pastor and teacher Rob Kellogg. The high places were not taken away. This indicates that Jehoash implemented a halfway reformation and not a total reform of Israel's worship. He did not take on the more difficult job of removing the high places. The people were so fondly and strangely addicted to the high places of worship that the prior kings, even though they were men of great power and courage and finally settled in their thrones, could not take those places of worship away. And so it's not strange that Jehoiada could not use his influence to have them removed either. Now let's join Pastor Rob's teaching already in progress. Heirs put on an appearance of something that we really are not. But isn't it true that we always have to look at ourselves in the mirror at some point? We have to have those times when we're by ourselves and we find out who we really are. You know, who are you when you're able to make your own decisions without any accountability? When there are no governors in your life, no master, no teacher, no boss anywhere in sight, because this is who we really are. I've known this true of myself, and, and it's, a, it's a sad commentary on my own heart. There have been times where I've had no oversight, and I find myself choosing to do things that I normally wouldn't do. And it proves my character. It proves who I am, and it's a hard thing to, to see it in yourself, and you realize just the corruption that's within us. E- even as Christians, there, there's still things in us that need to be refined, that God is refining. And certainly, the person who doesn't know Christ, they're filled with everything corruptible, and they have no idea, no clue at all what they're doing. But you and I, as Christians, you know, this even happens. And most of us don't really know who we really are until we're put in those positions like that. And it may break your heart to find out that you're not as sanctified as you thought you were. But the alternate thing is you may also find that you're more sanctified than you thought you were, but the trial will prove your character. Isn't it true that trials prove us? Trials prove the depth of our character. And we're going to see that, and we actually read it, but we're going to be looking at it a little closer, just that idea of the depth of character of Joash. It seemed like it was only skin deep, and we'll look at that. And, and people can be sincere about anything, but they can be sincerely wrong and even sincerely deceived. Have you met somebody who's sincerely deceived? I mean, they really believe the deception. And you're looking at them and you're like, how can you... I, you're dumbfounded because you're like, 
you know, you're looking at the sky and you're telling them it's blue, and, and indeed it is because there's no clouds in the sky, and they're saying, no, it's, it's, it's orange. And you're like, what? And things like that happen, but sincere is an interesting word. In Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary, and if you don't have Noah's 1828 American Dictionary, I would encourage you to get it. They actually sell it on the Apple uh, store. You can get it electronically. And usually it comes in a big, thick thing like this. It's got a green cover. If you can find one, get it because it's wonderful. It includes scriptures and the definitions. Just an amazing thing. But the word sincere literally comes from, and I got this from the dictionary, from Webster's 1828 American Dictionary. Sincere comes from Latin with, of sinceris, which is said to be composed of uh, of sign, or it means without, literally, is what sinaris uh, means, without, and Sarah means wax. And so it literally means without wax. Because people in the old times, in the Middle East, when they would go to the Go to the store, go along the, you know, where they buy vases and stuff like that, you know, out, outside markets. They would grab those vases and they would hold them up to the sun and they would see if they're sincera without wax because those pots could be broken. And when those pots are broken, they, they were very crafty. They'd take wax and they'd melt it in between the thing and they'd fit it together and the wax would dry and then they'd paint it and then it would look like a new vase. And little, little did you know that the thing had been broken two or three times prior, but you wouldn't know it until you looked at it, up, you held it up to the sun and you could see right through it and you could see the lines and the cracks where it was with wax. So therefore, it wasn't sincere. It wasn't sincere. It was with wax instead of without wax. But trials have a way of showing us how sincere, the the real makeup of who we really are, our character as it's held up to the light of the sun. And the sun or the sun, S-U-N or S-O-N, makes no difference. When God holds us up, what does he see? Does he see us with wax or without wax? Are we sincere or are we not sincere? But James tells us, Jesus' half-brother, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That literally means putting to the proof. And that's the same thing of holding up a vase to the light. You're seeing if it's sincere or not. Who really am I? And who is Joash? Was he this great man or was he this scoundrel all along, just masquerading Because he had a governor in his life, a man whom he looked up to, that he respected. But there seems to be, and it goes on, it says, knowing that the testing or the proving of your faith, what does it do? It produces patience. It produces a steadfast endurance. That's what it does. But there seems to be no way else of finding out our character until the circumstances or an opportunity presents itself, and then our character is put on display. And so are we sincere? Are we sincere? Are we without wax? Am I without wax? And I don't know for sure. I can talk a big game all I want, but life has a way, and God has a way of exposing me. And what does he do? Does he expose me so that he can smash me and, and everything and hurt me? No, God exposes you if you're a Christian. He chastens those whom he loves. So when he causes you to get busted or he, he convicts your heart about something, it's because he wants to get it out of you. You know, why did he lead the children of Israel in the desert for 40 years? It was to get Egypt out of them. Egypt was a, an idol-worshipping place. He had to bring his people out into the desert to remove 
Egypt from them. And you remember one of the first things they did when they came out, what'd they do? They built a, uh, they built a calf, a golden calf. Remember that? God had to get Egypt out of them because that's what they did in Egypt. They worshiped cows. So God wants to do that. He wants to get it out of us, to refine us, to conform us to his image. Isn't it true? First Thessalonians, I believe it's, uh, Four verse three, or yeah, I think it's four verse three or four verse thirteen. It says, "This is the will of God, your sanctification." And sanctification is a process that takes time, and God, in that process, is showing you to the light, and you're you're seeing it yourself. He's revealing it to you, and then we have a choice to make: Am I gonna Am I gonna get rid of this thing? Am I gonna put this? Am I gonna repent of this thing? Am I gonna do everything I can to get this thing out of my life? And if I do, then God will polish me up again, and then later on down the road, he'll lift it up again, and maybe there'll be a few less uh, lines and cracks, and he goes, okay, but what about this? Let's, let's work on this now. Oh, Lord, I really love that thing. Well, we'll come back. We'll come back to it. And pretty soon you hate that thing. And he's like, okay, you ready to deal with it now? And we're like, yes, I'm ready to be done with this thing. Okay, let's go after it. Let's get it done. And I love that about the Lord. And he's always doing that to all of us. No matter how old in the Lord we are, he's always working. He's always doing that work in us. And Job's faith was even tested. Although he struggled immensely, God knew Job's strength, even though Job didn't know. And God saw him through the trial, did he not? And at the end, he reaped double for his trials. Even Abraham was tested. In Hebrews eleven seventeen, it says that Abraham, when he was tested... When he was put to the proof, he offered up Isaac. God had told him that through Isaac would be the promises, through Isaac would be the seed, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and down through you know, um, you know, Jake, uh, you know, Jacob, and then uh, down through Judah, and then Judah down to Christ. Do you, do you see how that works? When he was tested, he offered up his only son, the only one that the promise was in, And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, And Isaac, your seed, there it is again, shall be called. Out of Isaac would come the Messiah, because out of Isaac would come Jacob, out of Jacob would come the patriarchs, Judah, and then Judah all the way down. And that's what the whole genealogy in Matthew and Luke is all about, showing us. That through the line of Judah, Christ, whether on Mary's side or Joseph's side, it doesn't matter, even though Joseph had nothing to do with it, Do you get it? And so when he was tested, and then uh, concluding then, Abraham, that God was able to raise him up, even though he would try to kill him, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham knew there was something more to this whole act of him putting Isaac, his only begotten son, to death on the very mount, on the very mount that Christ was placed where he gave his life on the same mountain range, Mount Moriah, where the Temple Mount is today was the very place that Abraham offered up Isaac. And then some couple thousand years later, another father would offer his only begotten son on that same place. God was showing him in a type, in in an understanding. But God knew intimately the faith of Job. And it wasn't, it's not a sin to be tempted. God doesn't tempt. Satan tempts us. God doesn't tempt us. But Jehoash, or Joash, he started out well, but he didn't finish well. Don't you want to finish well? 
God has done a great work in your life already. He wants to start you out and he wants to see you through it. You know, he who began a good work in you will, will be faithful to complete it in the, until the day of Christ Jesus. He wants to complete that good work that he's begun in each of us. And you may not think that God has done a good work in you, but, and you may be going through a valley, but I, I can tell you that if you're a, a, a believing Christian, God is working in you. Even though it may be painful at times, he's working in you. He wants you to finish well. You've got all of the, the cheerleaders in heaven rooting for you. No one here on earth will root for you except for some members of the church, but even the church will be on your case sometimes. But there's a whole host in heaven that is cheering you on for each step of the way, each trial you go through. But do you want to finish well? If you do, then abide in Christ daily. It will not be without trials. It will not be without tests. But do the right thing and make no provision for the flesh. What did Paul tell the Galatians? He said to them, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But see, here's the deal. When and if you blow it, confess it, receive the forgiveness of God, turn from it, and move toward Christ. Take hold of that promise that was given to us by God through the Apostle John when he said in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and here is the wonderful promise. Commit this one to heart and memory. If we confess, John speaking, he's speaking of himself as well. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there any other greater promise than that? There's a lot of really great promises, but this is one of the best ones. Because if we confess, then he will. Do you see it? If we confess, then it's conditional, isn't it? We have to confess it. And then he is faithful to forgive it. And then, don't go digging around again for that sin again. People do that. They, they confess something and then God forgives them. They have to believe it by faith, of course. But if they don't believe it by faith and they're constantly feeling guilty about that sin, they're like, you know, they're looking around the corner for that sin and it's haunting them. The shadow is chasing them and they won't let it go. And they're like, and God is going, hey, didn't I forgive you about that uh, seven years ago? Why are you running around like that? Trust in me. Is what I did on the cross, on my son on the cross, was that not, here's a great word, efficacious? Wasn't that good enough? Or do you somehow have to make yourself right by the flesh? Well, if I just keep my standards and I, you know, tighten my belt and I put the brill cream on my hair, I'm going to be just fine. Hey, you can do all that you want, but you're going to fall again. Believe the promise of God. You honor him when you honor his promise. When you rest in his promise, you honor God. Do you understand? It's a wonderful promise. And when you take him for his promises, he delights in it. There's nothing greater than you can do than to claim the promise of God because God, you've got his stamp of approval. And he's like, yes, now go take it and live it. And when you blow it again, you confess it and come back and where our fellowship is restored through the blood of Christ. And then get back up, no matter what the devil tells you, no matter what the church tells you, no matter what your own flesh tells you, believe the promise of God. And that is a promise that people trip over all the time. And I feel like I've already gotten through my message. But we haven't even gotten into verse 1 yet, really. So let's get into it. But notice that Joash started well. He did not finish well. But yet there was one man 
who was in his path. And thank God for men like that. But let's look at it. Verse 1, it says, In the seventh year of Yehu, Jehoash became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba. And uh, this, this Joash, or Jehoash, he reigned from 835 B.C. to 796 B.C., He was the second longest reigning king in Judah up to this point in the divided kingdom. We know that Saul and David and Solomon, they all reigned 40 years each. But um, Jehoash was the second longest reigning king in Judah after after the kingdom had divided Asa earlier was a, a, a king earlier in Judah. He reigned for 41 years, and then next it was Joash here. And so just an interesting longevity that the Lord gave him. And notice in verse 2 it says, Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. I would encourage you to underline or put a little asterisk next to that, ver- that verse 2 because you can already sense and see in the text here that there was a condition that caused him to stay on the straight and narrow, and it was the presence of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada was the governor. He was sort of like an uncle to him, in a sense, in this young boy's life. And Jehoiada was a grown, mature man when Joash came to uh, the, the kingdom at a ripe old age of seven. And Jehoiada did many things when this young boy couldn't even... It was just so small, he didn't know anything yet, but during that time, Jehoiada, he did at least four things, and these are all things that are in the scripture. Number one, he gathered the Levites and the bodyguards to protect the king in his house. He made sure that he remained out of sight and out of mind, just like Jehosheba uh, stored him away in the house of God, and Jehoiada was there to protect him as well, because he was the last one left. He was the remainder, the last one standing, if you will, after Athaliah murdered everybody else. So here we have Jehoiada doing this before he even understood what was happening. He was just a little boy. And he planned, Jehoiada, he planned and oversaw the overthrow of Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. He also, thirdly, made a covenant between himself, the people, and the king as a little boy that they should be the Lord's people. So he's trying to help restore Judah back to its right moorings, if you will. And then finally, he appointed the oversight of the house of the Lord to the hand of the priests, the Levites, whom David had assigned in the house of the Lord to offer burnt offerings to the Lord as it's written in the law of Moses. And all these things Jehoiada did to help restore the kingdom back to the line of David according to the word of the Lord. And we read that passage according to the word of the Lord. What was that word of the Lord that it's spoken of here, it's, it's speaking of that passage that I had you memorize, right? Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, the Davidic covenant. David, your seed is going to be on the throne forever. That was the promise that God had made. And what is Athaliah doing? And see, that's why Jehoiada could act with all conviction now to do the right thing to restore their worship because they had gotten so off track in Baal worship. And Jehoiada's like, the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. And God's going, well, get after it. Restore it. Restore the worship. Restore the rightful heir to the throne. But notice, even though Jehoash started well, notice verse 3, but the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. Now, 
Even though they may have been worshiping Jehovah, perhaps many of them, maybe not all of them, but they were to do it in the right place. There was only one place that they were to worship. And where was that? Jerusalem, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 12, it says this. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord your God of your fathers has given you to possess all the days of the, that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the high hills, under every green tree, and you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods, destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God, <coughs> excuse me, with such things. But here it is, verse 5, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. And we know that in time, God does that. In verse 11, it says, Then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, all of that. Bring them to the house of God. And God hadn't established that yet, hadn't, had he? Because in Deuteronomy, they were still on the eastern side of, of the Jordan River. They hadn't crossed over into the promised land yet. The land hadn't even been divided. None, none of that was happening. God was saying, when the time is right and I establish my house, and he, was thinking, he had his eye and his heart on Jerusalem the whole time, that is where you're going to worship. There and there only. Not on the hill, anywhere else. It's to be one place. See, God was very clear how he ought to be worshipped and where he was to be worshipped. He didn't leave it up to man to make it up as he went along. Well, I just feel like worshipping the Lord this way. I feel like worshipping the Lord that way. No, God has made it very clear to the Jews how and where he ought to be worshipped and very specifically how they are to worship him. Why? Because he's a God of order. You can always tell when somebody's worshiping something other than the true and living God because there's nothing but chaos. Nothing but chaos. It's not up for us to make it up. And do you remember in the letters that Jesus wrote to the churches, the seven churches in Revelation? Chapters 2 and 3 were those seven letters to the seven churches that were physically in Asia Minor at the time, and remember, he always started off with a commendation and then a correction. Most of them, I think, except for one, most of them were just, there was a commendation, you're doing this right, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. So there was always a commendation and then a correction. We're seeing the same thing in the book of Kings. He did these great things, but he didn't take away the high places. He was a great king and did, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, except he didn't do this. You're going to see that as we go through Kings as well. And so, verse 4, back in our text, says, So Joash said to the priests, All the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, each man's assessment money, and all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take it themselves from each his constituency, and let them repair the damages of the temple wherever, wherever any dilapidation is, is found. That's the end of our lesson for today, but please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of 2 Kings.
Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office. You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things such as information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, our location, service times, and much more. You can also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester's sanctuary messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Podcast or Apple Podcast. You're also invited to join us on Sunday and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link on the website. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you with your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.